reading this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, commencing at verse 1 through to verse 11, and you'll find it on page 1184 of the Pew Bibles. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Amen. Uh, morning. Great, great to see you. I don't know about you. I, I think we're a very lucky church. We come in, sing two great songs like that and praise the Lord with um, people who are so able at helping us sing and then um, have a couple of spiritual parents for our uh, younger church members like um, Mickey and Amy. Um, I don't know, I sit here and think that's a pretty good thing, isn't it? What a great blessing. Uh, we turn to God's Word and uh, this is a different sort of sermon. We're breaking in our little run through the Gospel of Luke in order to um, uh, spend some time thinking about the kind of questions that come up in the public square for us as Christians uh, with the kind of conviction that uh, we're more a minority than we used to be. And when you're a minority, you're a bit weaker and a bit weirder, and um, it's good to explain yourself. Um, uh, it's almost a survival strategy. Uh, and that's a good thing to do. And so this sermon today is um, hopefully explains uh, uh, what Christianity, what sense Christianity makes around one of the key areas that people are thinking around these days, around diversity. Um, because I uh, want to explain clearly, I may not be clear about something and you may have a question. So you can see a number there, that's my phone. And uh, if, if my phone is pinging in my pocket while I preach, I'll know I've got a couple of questions to answer later in the service, uh, which should be fine and good. Uh, so take advantage of that. Let me pray. Father, thanks that we can gather here today. Thanks that you, this is your world. You speak to it in all its details. Um, we're often confused. So we pray for clarity from your word. Uh, help me to be clear, help us to uh, hear and understand and help those of us who um, uh, are troubled by this question um, to have more clarity. Uh, Father, if we're not a follower of Jesus here, pray that Jesus would make clear to us, you Lord will make clear to us how you um, make this world work. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, um, pray that we might walk in his steps and not on our own. Amen. 
Okay, well, to begin to sort of think about diversity, I want you to do a sort of thought experiment. I know you all like to travel, so I'd like you to travel back to the 16th century. You're in the court of Henry VIII, and um, let's uh, imagine you start well, life fairly well. You're a duke or a duchess. Okay, I could have made you a peasant, uh, but I've, 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 given you, I've given you land and, and honour and title. So there you are in the court of Henry VIII, duke and duchesses, surrounded by your old, your similar, half-related dukes and duchesses, and you've just been out for the weekly hunt. Coming from the hunt, naturally you sit down to banquet, pheasant and mushrooms. Sound all right? Am I doing well by you so far as your travel guide? Happy enough? You remember last week's hunt and coming in with the same crowd of half-related dukes and duchesses and sitting down to a banquet, pheasants and mushrooms. And the week before that, if I remember rightly, was pheasant and mushrooms. And the week before that. But today you sit down and it's um, pheasant and broccoli. And so you notice like a, a, a note of delight and relief in the voice of the one who says prayers. For isn't it wonderful that the world is so diverse? I remember what it was like to have meat and three veg for most of the week. And it was not the 16th century. They say that the past is a foreign country, and we normally love going to foreign countries, but I never want to go to the 16th century. I, not only is the food very same-ish, but the people all look like my cousins. The past was so undiverse at times, not everywhere, that oranges were once remarkably exotic. Now, where would you rather be? I'm voting peas. At time, the 20th century and globalism has done a couple of things for us. It's presented us with an incredibly good view of the delight and beauty of diversity. And it's also shown us, as diversity travels around the world, the absolute necessity of it, hasn't it? It's pretty obvious. This is not the 16th century. Ours is a world in which we need to deal with difference very well and very often. And this is reflected in the movies we make, in the kind of well, the way they're cast. Uh, the new head of the Globe Theatre promises race-blind, um, disability-blind, 50-50 gender-split Shakespeare. And she nailed her colour to the mask by starting with Henry V, with her in the role of Henry V. Uh, we see this in our workplaces, in the policies we pass, in the committees. Uh, the workplace committees that exist to promote and protect the delight of diversity. Diversity, you see, looks back to the past and promises a completely different future and a better one. And it's become, I think, probably one of the key virtues of our age. And the question's obvious. How are many going to live as one? Christianity, however, doesn't always look like part of that glorious future. Sometimes in the sort of story of diversity, Christianity looks like it begins, belongs to the past. On some issues, Christianity has begun to even look like a villain in the diversity drama. And this makes Christians, if you're a Christian, who move in diverse contexts a little uncertain, and it makes others who move in diversity contexts with Christians even more uncertain about us. So it's time for a little explanation, don't you think? Uh, I, we know that Christianity is no longer the big kid in town. We know we look weaker and weirder than we used to. Personally, most of the things I love in life are both weak and weird, so I'm not worried about that. 
but it might need some explaining. And that's what we hope to do. If you are a Christian, I want to remind you that you actually belong on the diversity committee that is our culture today. And don't just belong there like, well, I belong at this table too, but to actually be helpful there. Uh, If you're not a Christian, then I hope that you can hear a little bit with a bit more nuance how Christians think they live among difference. But before we get into Christianity and diversity today, I want to just do a little bit of philosophy and I'm going to ask for your permission. So is it okay if I... Thank you very much. I take your approval. Good, good. We're going to do about five minutes of philosophy because we just need to think a little bit deeper about diversity. When I say philosophy, I just mean common sense, by the way. I don't have a degree. I mean, I do have a degree. You'll be glad to know. (laughs) I don't have a degree in philosophy. I'm making this stuff up. But this is just basically sanctified common sense. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but almost everyone agrees that diversity is a good idea. Just as no one wants to eat, you know, meat and three veg all the time. No one wants to kind of um, live among their cousins all the time. Uh, No one wants to only hear their language spoken all the time. No one wants to have the same conversation with the same like-minded people all the time. We all know diversity is a good thing. And yet, given that the almost universal agreement that diversity is great, why is there so much disagreement about it? What's going on in diversity then? I want to point out to you something obvious, but it must obviously be hidden. And that is that just like when you go to Bunnings to get your own unique paint colour for your wall so you don't look like your neighbours, you know how it begins with a base paint colour and then more gets added? Well, under diversity, there's a base coat. Under the word we use diversity, which is a fuzzy, broad word, there's always a base coat that ties those ideas together. But here's the scary thing. It's something we don't often acknowledge. We're working with different base coats. The base idea under diversity that many of us are working with, the base ideas are different. And I'll show you three of them quickly now. And you'll see why these things overlap and feel like they're on the same page and then suddenly aren't, and why we have problems in diversity then. Here's the first path to diversity. It's this. Uh, It's got a philosophical word, which I can't pronounce, but I can wrap it up in this phrase, I'm free to do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone. Ever heard anyone say that? Well, you were talking to someone who may not realise that they are a libertarian, okay? In this view, you can do whatever you want within your personal life and within your fence line. And life can get very diverse here. As, diver- as, as diverse as there are numbers of individual free me's. That is, on my property, I can build a house or a temple or a mosque or ride motorbikes. I can immunise my kids or not. I can even build a temple and let my unimmunised kids ride motorbikes in it. I can do whatever I like. And... You ought not judge me. It is, after all, my life, my place, my land, my kids, my temple, my motorbike. Get off it. Right? And you, on your side of the fence, there you go, you've got all that free space. Go to it. Do what you like. This, the base idea here is individual freedom. This is diversity, if you like, in the image of me. And if there's another person over there who's also a me, and you are a me, you, that's me, we're all me's, then there's as much diversity as there is numbers of me's. Do you you see the point? Now, you can probably see holes in this approach to diversity, can't you? Um, The problem is that fence. It has holes in it. 
which means that what you do on your property spills into my property. Your temple can be heard in my mosque. Your motorbike's loud enough for me to hear it. Your plants grow into my property. Your kids climb the fence and they're unimmunized and now my kids are sick. And even if they don't, maybe you do stuff on your property with your kids and I know they're your kids and your land and your house that, that I in conscience am worried about and that's when I call doc. Right? And you, you know this doesn't really actually work very well because no man is an island or woman either. No, we're, we're, we're deeply related. It's a kind of high ideal. It doesn't just work out that well. But what there's one approach to diversity, one that some people very strongly think, they're a very small number of people, but they really believe in it, and it's really a diversity in the image of me and my freedom. Okay? Second one. This one looks much more common. In fact, this is really how Australia works now. And that's the idea of pluralism, that we are one because we are many. I think we even have a song like that, don't we? Right? And, and this is great. It always looks like a party. I mean, that's a party. Isn't it cool that those girls are having such a great time? And it takes the idea of individual freedom. I have my freedom. But it does something different to libertarianism. It says, no, no, don't celebrate it away on your property. Bring it to the public space and I'll bring mine and we'll, and we'll have it there together. And therefore, it needs to learn to tolerate difference. That was like the 80s and 90s. And then go, no, no, this is better than that. We should celebrate difference, 2000s on. And some people go, this is so great and it has been such a great kind of movement in so many ways that they go, this is so great, we can help this even further down the road by not just tolerating or celebrating, but legislating. Let's make laws and put quotas in and have committees and do things to reinforce this good thing that's happening. Makes, makes sense, doesn't it? It sounds like a great way. Of course, there's a couple of holes in that. And they're not obvious, but they do emerge over time. Can you see what they are? The first thing is, while this looks like a great party, a great big wide open hug, it actually isn't, is it? It's a very wide hug, but it's not a wide, hug, wide enough hug to take everyone. This view needs to come clean and say it actually doesn't think all diversity is good. That while it's partying up diversity, it needs to admit it's partying up one kind of diversity. And there are some diversities that it won't accept to the party. For example, it'll accept Islam, but not jihad. It loves spirituality, but struggles with religious doctrine. Really digs Hinduism, especially like the Bollywood stuff part, which isn't actual official Hinduism. We should just educate ourselves here. Doesn't like child brides. Appreciates hippies, but not anti-immunizers. And wicked jokes. That is, it always presents with very wide opens, but actually doesn't hug everything in sight, which raises the next question. Who gets to decide what gets the hug and what gets the cold shoulder? And everyone knows it can't be me because this is pluralism. This is about many, so I can't decide that. So what do we do? Well, there's an answer, isn't there? We vote. Because if enough of us can decide what we hug and what we don't hug, then we're all agreed, right? Well, no. A majority of us agree. And you see why politics has become so much more passionate in the last 20 years. 
because politics is the only tool we have to establish this kind of agreement that can say what's in, what's out. Are we all agreed here? Yes, 76% of us. Right? So there's problems here, isn't there? If the majority decide what good is, how do we know that their good is really just and right? Really good. Are the, aren't the majority just likely to decide what best suits them? Aren't the majority likely to push around some minorities? And isn't that the anti-diversity problem that we just got rid of? Are we in danger of just swapping the victims in the diversity debate? So you see behind this plural diversity, which always looks like a party and often is, and is really great most of the time, there's actually hidden conformity of the majority. Most of us said, this is how we're gonna run. So you're not, you're now not getting with the party. This is diversity not in the image of me, like libertarianism, but it's not diversity in the image of everyone either, is it? Let's be honest. It's diversity in the image of the majority. Thirdly and finally, this one's quick. There's a third one, not so popular anymore, declining in, well, it's actually still believed by millions of people around the world. And that is that diversity in the world is basically good because it reflects the goodness of the design of a God. Now that's Jesus, obviously, and, um, uh, it's not always Christian, actually. Islam thinks this, Aboriginal creation stories um, do this too. The base idea of this diversity pathway is that diversity is, works best when it works together under the designer of that diversity, its creator. Now, you'll think I'm going to go for this one, obviously, but I want to say this has holes too. People can say, invent something and say God says it. It's also pretty obvious that some religious folk prove to be less keen on the kind of diversity than their God has designed. We're all deep conformists by nature, pushy, forceful. If, if, we're, if we're really Christian, we'll know we're sinful and know that even on our best days, we're inclined to treat people not 100% well. And we see that in this history. But when we look at all these three views, we can make clear something very easy, that Diversity discussions aren't usually, but usually between the pro-diversity good people over here and the anti-diversity baddies over there. They're usually between a whole bunch of people who all agree that diversity is good, but just aren't talking the same language. They have very different base ideas. Therefore, I think everyone needs to be a little bit less certain about their virtues and values take some of the self-righteousness out of our diversity games and listen more carefully. So let's listen more carefully to that last one because that's obviously the kind of path that I want and that the Bible suggests. How does Christianity think diversity works? Now, this is really important for us. This is not just in your neighbourhood, it's not just with your neighbours, it's in your workplace, it's in your conversations very important that we kind of get a handle on this. So I'm going to take you on a hop, skip and jump through the Bible very quickly and land in Colossians 3. This will be quick. But I hope it makes clear that Christians can speak very helpfully into the diversity committees of our day and that God is actually a greater champion of diversity than we are, but he'll do it differently to us. Okay, firstly, diversity in the beginning, in God's image. The beginning of the Bible reminds us God is a massively diverse creator. He just, he, he makes a creation of immense difference 
and he blesses it and delights in it. He didn't make it and go, oh my goodness, that got out of hand. <laughs> he makes it and goes, that's beautiful, that's good. One, one verse example, Genesis 1, God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in them, according to their kinds, lots of kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God said, oh my goodness, those animals are out of control. No, he said, this is good. He makes garfish and guppies and great blue whales. But he goes further. He makes some creatures, neither fish nor birds, people in his own image, and he does an amazing thing. Even, even made in his image as the one creator, he makes them diverse. He makes them male and female. And from that diversity, he sends them out into even greater diversity. He like kind of says, go, scatter, multiply, increase. And he sends them out to multiply in race and language and culture and tribe and art. And if you think I'm making this up, that's the story of Genesis 1 to 11. That's what it's about. The growth of the nations and their differences and diversities. God just loves diversity by his very nature. It's we who do landscaping. God makes forests. So our love of diversity is a little echo of God's delight in the diversity that he built into the world. Make sense? That's why we love diversity. But, just like no view of diversity in the world gives us a wide open embrace to take everything in, nor does God. For there's a moment in history, there's a moment in history where people could, really couldn't bear the kind of overwhelming diversity of God's creation. And there's a little story in Genesis about this. He gave them every tree in the garden. You can imagine just trees of, you know, many species and kinds. He said, you can eat from any of them. They said, we want that one. The one that's yours, God. It's an interesting story and I don't want to make too much of it, but it's fascinating that they deny this kind of great landscaping that says, we want, we want the one that would make us like you. We don't, we don't want to be merely in your image. And we certainly don't want to kind of have to face the kind of terrible diversities and varieties and risk and lack of security. We just, we would like to be as big as we can and as, as like you as possible. We want your stuff. You think I'm making too much of that, and that's a bit of a symbolic interpretation of that. See where this treads by the end of Genesis 1 to 11. In chapter 11, the people are building a tower. They're on their journeys up valleys and across plains and out to different places to form a very diverse world. And they say, let us build ourselves a city. Let's not go any further. Let's stop and build ourselves a city so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, listen... Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Hey, guys, that was God's plan. He wasn't casting you adrift. He was saying, go, be fruitful, multiply, enrich, steward this place, make it diversely glorious. And if you think I'm pushing this point about Babel, what does God do? But knock over their tower, confuse their common language, and spread them out for the purpose he originally had for them. What does this mean? It suggests that when we sin, our characterization of sin is that we choose interesting paths that God didn't intend for us and go to ever more interesting places on them. That's the 
characterization of sin, and you'll see that in advertising, at the very least. But the story of sin in the Bible, actually, is that we refuse the various paths of God, and we refuse the image He's given us, which is dangerously varied to us. And we actually just want to be like the safest, biggest thing we can find. We want to be Him. We want to define what it is to run everything. That's the nature of sin. To refuse the image God gave us and instead to manufacture our own. And the incredible irony is for all the weird ways we design our own, we usually choose great conformity to whatever it is we think will give us safety. The self-imaging that this is The Bible doesn't call diversity. It already had a word for diversity. It calls creation. This is destruction. This the Bible calls sin. What happens next? Well, God sends Jesus. God is for us. And into this incredibly diverse and perverse world where people have taken God's image and really twisted it in the service of themselves, Jesus appears with the love of God. I say that all the time, but let's just stop there. Into this world, beautifully diverse and tragically perverse, Jesus appears with the love of God. Beautiful. says stop viewing things the way we view them now put on a heavenly mindset says take off your old self take off the way you were doing things that earthly nature you know what you should hug you shouldn't hug sexual immorality that's not diversity it's just dumb You shouldn't hug evil desires. You know, greed, it's not a good lifestyle choice. It's just sin. Idolatry is out. So is rage, malice, slander, filthy language. You go, this is so terribly undiverse. No, everyone would agree with this. (laughs) Of course, there are things that are out. There's a diversity that destroys. You call it sin. But what you are to do is put on a new self. And notice how this happens. It doesn't say, so now just make better decisions. It says this, put off your old self with its practices, verse 10, and put on the new self, listen, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. That's what happens when Jesus dies and rises again. When we come to participate in that by the Spirit, a work of transformation happens in us and we become renewed, did you see that? In the image of our creator. His design is restored in us. And what does that look like? Does everyone become like conservative 1950s Christians that are all made from the same boring lump of conservative clay? No, never God's plan. And that's the next verse. For what do we find? What do we find in Jesus' renewed image of God? We find barbarians and Scythians. We find slave and free. We find circumcised, uncircumcised, Gentile, Jew, Uh, We find old people, young people, we find disabled people and able people. 
We find they don't even know how to work that out anymore. We find people of various sexualities. Now, listen to me again on that one. There are some things that are. But, but in the kingdom of God, you will pe- find people of varied sexualities absolutely in through the Lord's mercy. Right? An immense diversity. In fact, a recent book, Sue pointed out to me, by Christoph Scholkos, a um, great Australian novelist, a, a, a gay writer, had written a book on the early church, on Paul. And he, he details just how deeply shocking it would have been for anyone to walk into a church in the early church. You go, why is that person here with that? How dare that slave talk to that master like that? Are you mad? How can that Jew? That Jew can't sit next to that Gentile. And I don't know about you, but I see this in church, just like Sue outlined at the beginning of the service. Um, I remember a time at a, at a church uh, when a, where a person came in and I remember the first things they uttered when they walked into church. I can't say it here because it's not church words. They go, I almost want to say it just to scare you, but it was, you know, expletive me. What the hell are you doing here? Right? And that person here was their neighbour with which they had had years of feud and they couldn't believe that that person should ever be sitting in church. And then they went and sat down with me and sat in church together. What does God do? Well, he makes a marvellous diversity. He's the designer of it. It's in his image, not ours. What does this mean for us? Let's finish up very quickly. What are you going to do on the diversity committee of our culture or in your actual workplace? I want to say you are, you belong at that table. You need to be aware, in fact, everyone at that table needs to be aware that there are different base ideas at work. Um, I don't think people are very aware of that. You're aware of it. But you can sit at that table and yes, you'll be weird. Christians do think that some diversity is human-made and not all of it is God-blessed. That's true. But we also can sit at that table because we're not pushy people and we don't run the committee. In fact, even if you're the chair of a diversity committee, you don't run the committee as a Christian. Why? Because you're on there for the common good. Why? Because our kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. We don't get the committee that runs this world. Jesus said it very clearly. My kingdom is not of this world. And, and you can have this weirdly complex life, like he describes with the coin in Caesar, where you give your worship to God, but you pay your tax to the governor where you worship the Lord, but you need to do what you do without it being non-worship to the Lord, without betraying the Lord, to honour and care for and participate and serve those around you. Christians are, are, ought to be excellent people on a diversity committee. Why? Well, we know we have to give to the lawmakers what belongs to the lawmakers. We know we're not the big kick in town. We know we don't chair the committee. We know that our ways are persuasion, not force, love, not legislation, and that we can be a blessing and help. Be confident. But also look forward, because there's a greater diversity committee. It's not made by human hands or the ideas of men and women. It's made by God through the Lord Jesus, and it looks like this. This is what the diversity committee will look like in the end. 
I looked and there before me was a great multitude. Do you hear that? This is heaven. This is the new creation. A great multitude that no one could count. So when I said great multitude, I meant a great multitude. And they are from every nation. Every nation. From every tribe, people and language. And they stand before the throne and before the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Very good on diversity committees now. Praising God in the greatest diversity committee ever, actually. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that we are not, um, we're, we're capable of loving and serving others in this complex world um, because we're your people. We thank you that your kingdom is not a kingdom of force or law, but of spirit and truth, of grace and love. Now, Father, these very complex things in our world, we pray that we would prove equal to them because you're the author of all things. And we pray that you give us wisdom in the name of Jesus. Amen.